Well, all semester we've been talking about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the eschatos, the end, the final things. And so uh, eschatology is the study of the end times. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is eschatology really is not about all of the things that our culture makes it about. It's not about uh, crazy people that are prophesying the end of the world and uh, that are predicting the dates and the times and uh, trying to find these different uh, relationships with certain world leaders in, uh, in Europe or the U.S. or whatever it might be. Eschatology is ultimately about hope. Eschatology is about the fulfillment of God's promises that he makes to his people. And so we've talked about when Christ is going to return. We've talked about how he's going to return. We've talked about eternal life versus eternal condemnation and the importance of us understanding uh, those distinctions. We've talked about heaven and hell and heaven and hell in church history. And, uh, and so now we're getting to an area that's a bit more controversial. So really over the next uh, five, six weeks or so, as we finish out the semester, we're going to be in what is a bit more controversial. And uh, so this morning, we're going to begin the first of three weeks on millennial theories, which you might think would be the study of millennials like uh, Jared, but that's not what millennial theories means. Instead, it's talking about the millennium. What is the millennium? The millennium is the thousand years that are referenced in Revelation chapter 20. So if you look at your notes, you'll see there Revelation 21 through 10 I've underlined all of the references there to the thousand years. That is a millennium from the Latin word millennium, which means thousand years. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, uh, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So a lot of these things we've already talked about. We've talked about uh, the beast. We've talked about what it means to uh, the mark of the beast, as we talked about uh, the number 666 and all of these sorts of things that we've done over the past uh, few months. But today we're getting to, in particular, what is this thousand-year period? Now, I don't know what the word hubbub means, but all of the hubbub about the millennium is around this passage because this is the only passage in the entire Bible that explicitly mentions a millennium, that explicitly mentions this thousand-year period. And so what's all the fuss about when it comes to the millennium? Well, there are uh, basically various ways that you can interpret what this millennium entails. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about these different ways. And so uh, one way is premillennialism. 
that's what we'll kind of concentrate on today. Next week, we'll talk about amillennialism, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about postmillennialism. And uh, so these are historically the three main views which basically seek to answer the following four questions. The following four questions, number one, is this a literal 1,000 years, or is the number 1,000 symbolic? Uh, is it figurative for just a long period of time? Number two, is this a future occur- occurrence or is it already taking place? So are we already in the millennium or is the millennium something that is yet to come? Number three, when does Christ come in relation to this period? Does he come before or does he come after? Number four, will Christ's return immediately initiate the eternal state? When Christ returns, will we immediately be resurrected and enter into the new heavens and the new earth? Or is there something in between, uh, in between Christ's return and the eternal state? By the way, that's what premillennialism talks about, is that there's something in between. And uh, so that's basically it, though. If you can answer those four questions, then you basically know where you land as it relates to your millennial position, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. If you think that Christ comes back before the millennium, you're premillennial. Pre, as a prefix, means before. If you think that he comes back after the millennium, you're post-millennial. Post means after. If you think that the millennium has already been inaugurated, that, uh, that we are somehow in the millennium right now, then you're all-millennial. The all is a, uh, the prefix all negates something, like in the word atheism, atheism, atheism. But as we'll see, all-millennialism doesn't really say that there is no millennium. It just says that the millennium is, uh, has already been inaugurated, and, uh, and so um, a better name might be inaugurated or realized millennialism or something like that. But we'll talk about that uh, more as we go. So a few opening remarks in order to really understand this conversation, and uh, unless you misunderstand what we are and are not saying, a few things that you need to know. The first one is that the thousand year doesn't have to be literal. All right, we talked before when we walked through some of the symbolism of the book of Revelation. We saw the book of Revelation is a very symbolic book. And a lot of the numbers that you encounter in the book of Revelation are symbolic. And so we see 666, we see the prevalence of the number seven, we see references to four, like the four corners of the earth and, uh, uh, and, and those kinds of things. And so we see there's a whole lot of symbolism around numbers. And so the thousand years doesn't have to be literal. In fact, we see the number thousand, one thousand, that is used uh, throughout Scripture to refer symbolically to a large number. So think of the uh, Psalm 84. Matt Redman wrote a really famous uh, worship song uh, about this, that better is one day in your courts than what? Than a thousand elsewhere. Does that mean that one day in God's court is better than a thousand, but it's not better than like 1,250? No, obviously that's just a symbolic number for this large period of time. Or Psalm 50, which says that God owns what? The cattle on a thousand hills. Is that only? Is that like he owns no more, no less? Not 999, not 1001. Like the owner of the King Ranch in South Texas, he's richer than God because he might have, you know, 5,000 hills or something like that. No, obviously not. It's just symbolic for a large number. Or, or 2 Peter 3.8 which says that uh, uh, for God, a day is as if it's a thousand years and a thousand years as if it's a day. That's not a precise formula, so it's symbolic. So thankfully, none of the views, premillennialism, amillennialism, millennialism, or postmillennialism, 
Most of the time, I'm just going to uh, abbreviate those as pre-mill, a-mill, and post-mill. Thankfully, none of those views require that you take this to be a literal 1,000 years, no more, no less. All of them allow for there to be uh, symbolism. So you might meet somebody who is pre-mill who says, this is definitively a literal 1,000 years, but premillennialism itself does not require that. Does that make sense? You might meet someone who says it's literal, but the position itself doesn't require it. In fact, if you're amillennial, you have to say that this is not literal because amillennialism says that uh, we are currently in the millennium and we have been in the millennium ever since uh, Christ uh, rose or Christ ascended, and so basically 2,000 years. And, uh, and so 1,000 years doesn't have to be literal. That's the first thing that you need to know. Second thing, what you believe about the millennium isn't essential. This isn't essential. Your, your faith, your salvation is not at stake in regards to where you land on this particular topic. So Jared was once talking to one of his family members, and he asked them, what view of the millennium do you hold? And this family member uh, of his is a, is a pastor. And, uh, and so that pastor said, view? What view? You have uh, the Word of God, and then you have this Mickey Mouse stuff. That was his sort of thing. And that's certainly a, a, an opinion, right? Unfortunately, this guy's view of what constitutes Mickey Mouse stuff is held by Jonathan Edwards and Augustine and John Calvin and Martin Luther and, uh, and so forth. And so I would be very hesitant to say that they believed Mickey Mouse stuff. They didn't even, Disney wasn't even around then. Uh, so I was listening to a, a sermon by a, a really good, uh, a great New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner. And, uh, and he was talking about the fact that uh, he was all millennial. And then he started studying to preach through uh, Revelation uh, 20. And as he began to study it, he became convinced of pre-mill. And so he said, literally, a month prior to preaching that sermon, he had taught a class where he taught amillennialism. And then he preached a sermon as pre-mill. And, uh, and so I listened to this sermon, and then I read an article saying that uh, later he changed back to amill. And uh, so uh, there is room for debate and discussion uh, on this particular issue. In fact, all three of these major views, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmill, all of these are held by various elders at, uh, at Parkway. And so uh, just to put my cards on the table, uh, whenever I started studying this, I was about 60% uh, convinced of amillennialism and uh, about 40% pre-mill. And, uh, and then by the end of my studies for, uh, for this, I'm like 90% amill and 10% uh, pre-mill. And so, um, yeah, that's where, that's where I am. So even though I'm going to be concentrating on pre-mill this morning, that's most likely not where uh, I land. But I, uh, I want to uh, help you to see that these are secondary discussions. These are not things like we've talked about before with heresies like Arianism or Pelagianism or something like that. Your faith is not at stake. These are interfraternal debates, debates among brothers and sisters that we can discuss, that we can encourage each other, that we can challenge each other and so forth. But at the end of the day, if you hold a different uh, view than I do, that does not mean that uh, you're a heretic or, uh, or anything uh, else. What is, what is essential when it comes to eschatology that the church has always confessed from the Nicene Creed, I think you have this in your notes, uh, you have to affirm a few things, that Jesus will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, that his kingdom will never end, and that there will be a resurrection, a future resurrection of the dead and uh, life in the world to come. So, millennialism isn't essential. However, 
That doesn't mean that you should just get up and leave right now, right? Well, we're not talking about anything essential anyway. I'm going to go get a nap or something. The fact that it's not essential doesn't mean that it's not important, which leads to the third point. What do you believe about the millennium might not be essential, but it is important. You might have heard someone say, uh, say before that they are uh, pan-millennial, and then you ask them, what does that mean? And what do they say? It's all going to pan out in the end, right? Which is a great dad joke, right? It's not a great way to approach theology, though, right? So these things are important. It might not be essential, but it is important. And so let me give you four reasons why I think this is important, that, uh, that we wrestle through these and try to arrive at some sort of, uh, of conclusion. The first one, the very beginning of Revelation 1, in, uh, in verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So apparently there's blessing and grace for us in the book of uh, Revelation. Is it confusing? Yes. Is it controversial? Yes. But is there a reward in knowing and understanding it and trying to act upon it? Absolutely. So that's the first reason. The Bible itself in this book says there is a blessing for those who read it and seek to heed what's written in it. The second reason is because this affects our hope. What we believe about the millennium affects our hope. What you believe uh, happens when Christ returns has drastic implications for how you live now and whether you actually hope for this coming reality. In other words, will you go through a tribulation or are you going to get raptured out? That's kind of wrapped up in the discussion on millennialism. Will the world become increasingly hostile to Christianity or will it become increasingly Christianized? One of those views is a particular view of millennialism. The other is a, another view of millennialism. Will we instantly enter into the inter- eternal state when Christ returns, or will we have this long intermediate period on earth where people still die and there's still sadness and there's still death? So this affects our understanding of what is to come and thus our understanding of the degree of hope that we have in, uh, in this life. A third reason, it affects how you view culture and your responsibility to change the world. Will Christ come in some sort of apocalyptic moment, like a crisis moment at once instantaneously, or will culture get progressively better until Christ's return, as postmillennialism teaches? Furthermore, does that theory then lead you to avoid politics and abstain from uh, attempts to change culture, like some, but certainly not all? Uh, premillennials or amillennials might do? Or does that view lead you to take up the sword and try to usher in God's kingdom by virtue of violence, as some, but certainly not all, postmills might uh, historically have argued? So that's another reason that this is important. It affects your view of culture and your responsibility to change the world. And then lastly, knowing God's word in and of itself is never a useless exercise. People love to divorce the heart from the head, as if you can actually do those things, but that just doesn't work. Imagine that I tell you how much I adore my wife, Casey. And so I say, the way that I show how much I adore her is I work 90-something hours every week. And I work 90-something hours, and then I come home, and I mow the lawn, and I pull the weeds, and I take out the trash, and I love her so much. I'm doing all of these things for her. But I never actually take her out for a date. I never ask her questions. I never talk to her. Is that a good marriage? No, absolutely not. 
That's what it's like to say, I'm so busy doing all of this stuff for God that I'm not studying theology. I'm not thinking about God's Word. Well, how do you know what you're supposed to do if you don't read God's Word? And so simply studying theology is good in and of itself. This is why it's important, even if it's not essential for salvation. If you want to love Jesus, then you have to get to know Him in His Word. If you love Jesus, you want to know what He says, even the confusing parts like the millennium. So, as we've mentioned, there are three main views when it comes to the millennium, pre-mill, ah-mill, and post-mill. What we're going to do today is we're going to give a quick overview of, uh, uh, of each of those, but we'll spend the bulk of the time on pre-mill this week, ah-mill next week, post-mill the week after. So let's look at amillennialism first, and then we'll do post-mill, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time on pre-mill. You have this in your notes, ah-mill is the view that the return of Christ happens after the thousand-year reign, a reign that is occurring now in heaven in the intermediate state and not upon the earth. Those who have died in faith and entered into the presence of Christ share His rule and reign during the current church age. So you can look at that uh, chart there that we uh, just simply got from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And uh, so you see there we're currently in the church age, in, uh, according to amillennialism, uh, Christ will return and you will instantly enter into the eternal state. All right? When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers. There will be judgment. There will be the new heavens and the new earth. And then you will uh, be ushered into the eternal state. So that's amill. Uh, that's probably the easiest to understand. Um, look at uh, postmill. Again, we're, we're going to spend an entire week on amill, so I'm not going to. Uh, spend as much time on it today. The same with post-mill. Post-mill says that the return of Christ happens after, that's the post, after the thousand-year reigns, which corresponds to the Christian age, and the reign of Christ from heaven leads the church to triumph by and through the gospel to such an extent that the Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled, and the Christian faith will pervade all the cultures of all the nations of men. All Christ's enemies will be subdued in this way, with the exception of death, which Christ will destroy at His coming. And so you can see there the uh, chart of postmillennialism, which looks very, very similar to Amil with the uh, distinction of you see how the church age leads into the millennium. And so the church age is not synonymous with the millennium. The church age leads into uh, the millennium. So they look very uh, similar with the distinction that postmill understands that before Christ returns, this is the distinctive of postmillennialism. Before Christ returns, the world will become progressively Christianized. Some postmills think that the, the millennium began when Christ ascended. Some believe that it began in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Others think that it might have occurred uh, during the Reformation. Still others might think that this is something that is yet to come, that we haven't actually entered in. We're still in the church age. Millennium is going to happen sometime in the future regardless uh, this view, what's distinctive about it is that the church progressively transforms uh, the world's culture, and uh, that's what's distinctive of post-mill. But again, those we're going to talk about in uh, future weeks just wanted to uh, kind of give you some sort of understanding of them to contrast with, uh, with pre-mill. Pre-millennialism, I can't say that word very well, the return of Christ happens pre or before the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is the reign of the risen Christ on the earth. So four things that you need to know about premillennialism, and then we'll give you some of the, uh, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of it. 
So pre-mill is also known as chiliasm or millenarianism. Millenarianism or chiliasm. Chiliasm is from the Greek word for a thousand. So chilioi uh, in, uh, in Greek is a thousand. Uh, kilo, by the way, is derived from this, like a kilogram, which is a thousand grams or a kilometer or something like that. So chiliasm is a much older term. You probably won't encounter it all that much, but just in case you encounter the word chiliasm or a chiliast, uh, or a millenarian, uh, just wanted you to know what that is. That refers to someone who believes in this pre-mill uh, theology. And uh, so those words are synonymous. Premillennialism, chiliasm, and millenarianism are all synonymous. Second, pre-mill has a rich theological history. Some would argue that it was uh, by, uh, uh, you know, far and away, the prevailing view of the early church fathers. Others would say that we might have had a mix in the early church of pre-mill and ah-mill, but regardless, it was certainly held by a number of really influential patristics that are church fathers, uh, uh, Papias, uh, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Um, due to the influence of Augustine, though, in the uh, 5th century or so, um, you're going to have a, a waning. So Augustine held to amillennialism, and so there's going to be this waning towards the end of the 4th century, into the 5th century, through the Reformation. By the way, there is then this resurgence of pre-mill theology that you're going to see um, in the 19th century. One of the reasons was because most liberals at this period were post-mill in their view. Now, that doesn't mean that post-mill is a liberal theology, don't confuse what I'm saying. It just so happens that most liberals viewed uh, the millennium through a post-mill sort of lens, and so conservative theologians kind of chose the furthest thing possible from that, which is uh, pre-mill. And, uh, and so that's in the uh, kind of a resurgence in the 19th century. In the late 19th century, you have the emergence of a completely new type of pre-mill theology and that is called dispensational premillennialism. Uh, which is what you see in like Left Behind books or Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. You might have read that. And we've mentioned this a number of times before. Dispensationalism is probably the dominant view, eschatological view, among American evangelicals. If you grew up in the church in the 70s, 80s, 90s in America, you probably have been influenced by uh, dispensational premillennialism. And even though it's the dominant popular view, it has never been uh, the dominant majority view among scholars. It has never been, nor is it now, the majority view among scholars. And so we'll talk about that distinction uh, here in, in, a minute, in a minute. But uh, for now, just note that premillennialism has a rich theological history. It was the view of most of the early church fathers. Third thing to know. What are the basic features of pre-mill? Number one, that Christ returns before the millennium. This is the sine qua non. This is the thing without which you don't have pre-mill uh, theology, that Christ returns before the millennium. In both, uh, both post-mill and ah-mill, Christ returns after the millennium, but in pre-mill, he returns before. A second feature is that believers who have died and those who are alive at Christ's return will receive resurrected bodies at the beginning of the millennium, and will reign with him. Third, Satan will be bound such that he can no longer deceive the nations. Fourth, thus some, maybe even, uh, maybe many, or even most unbelievers will trust Christ during the millennium. 
Fifth, Satan will eventually be released and there will be a final battle of Armageddon. And then uh, lastly, therefore, there is a necessary delay between the return of Christ and the consummation of the eternal state. So according to pre-mill theology, Christ returns, and then you have this thousand-year period. It can be literal or it can be figurative for a long period of time, during which there are resurrected immortal believers and non-resurrected mortal unbelievers, and they are living together on the earth for this long period, thousand-year period, before the new heavens and the new earth. That's the distinctive of premillennial theology. Now, the last thing that you need to know uh, about uh, premillennial theology uh, is that there are two forms, actually, of premillennialism. We hinted at that a minute ago. There is historic, and then there is dispensational. So I kind of did that here. I get the hard work. I have to talk about all of this, and then Zach gets to talk about just this, and Jared gets to talk about just that. Under premillennials, so you have millennial theories, you have these three that we've talked about. Under premill, you have these two, two different views. What's interesting is under dispensational, you actually have these, and this looks very different from this, and this looks very different from this. And so whenever you're talking about premill, you're using the same word, but it's a very different concept. Anyone ever watch The Office? There's a, there's a scene in The Office where uh, Michael Gary Scott, who's the manager, he, uh, he tells the, the, uh, the office that he has gotten them pizza from their favorite pizza place. And uh, he said, from Alfredo's. And so one of the guys interrupts and says, do you mean Alfredo's Pizza Kitchen or Pizza by Alfredo's? And he says, what's the difference? So there's a huge difference, both in the quality of taste and the quality of ingredients or something like that. Well, that's kind of like what this is talking about. This is the same name. They're both considered pre-meal as both of those pizzas were considered by Alfredo, and yet there is a wide distance between what each of these. So it's almost like instead of there being three views, we really should say there are four unique views. Historic pre-mill, dispensational pre-mill, mill and post-mill. And so don't let the name similarity confuse you. These are very, very different eschatological schemes, way of understanding uh, eschatology. And, uh, and so, when I say that I'm 90% amil and 10% premill, I mean historic premill. I, I personally am not convinced by dispensational theology, even though I was raised in a house that, uh, that taught dispensational theology, raised in a church that did that. I did my graduate work at probably the leading uh, dispensational school in the nation, uh, Dallas Theological. And so, I have a deep appreciation and sympathy and love for my fellow dispensationals, but I personally don't uh, land there. In fact, none of our staff or elders are actually dispensational, but you can be a flourishing, thriving member of Parkway and hold to that particular theology. That's just not uh, where we land, so we'll probably make fun of you lovingly. What's the differences? Uh, what, what are the differences between historic and dispensational pre-mill? I'm going to read this. Uh, it's on your notes. The basic difference consists in the latter maintaining a distinction between the latter being dispensational. Uh, so dispensational maintains a distinction between the na- nation of Israel and the church. According to dispensationalism, the millennium will be a period in which God reverts back to fulfilling Old Testament promises made to ethnic Israel after the parenthetical church age is concluded. Hence, the millennium will be a state of Jewish ascendancy over the world, complete with a renewed Jewish temple and priesthood, Christians who reign with Christ will all have eternal glorified bodies and will reign spiritually. 
while the Jews will own the world physically and will live, marry, and die, although evincing um, incredible longevity. Just as people have throughout the history of the world, it is only after this thousand-year period in which God fulfills his promises to ethnic Israel that Christ will put down a final rebellion and usher in this eternal state with this new heavens and new earth. Historic pre-mill requires none of this strict dichotomy between God's spiritual people, the church, and a physical people, ethnic Israel. It merely looks ahead to a time when Christ will reign visibly on the earth before he brings in the eternal state. So what's the difference? The major difference between historic and dispensational pre-mill is the way that dispensational premillennialism sees the purpose of the millennium as being for God to fulfill the promises that he makes to Israel, whereas historic would say God fulfills promises that he makes to Israel partly through the church. And so that is a major difference. And so you can see there, those charts look very similar with the exception of, uh, of the purpose of the millennium which is that uh, distinction between uh, Jews and, uh, and the church, or Israel and the church. And then also with the exception of a distinctive of dispensational premillennial theology is the, uh, uh, the pre-tribulational rapture. And, uh, and so those are the, uh, the differences there. For the sake of time, we won't cover all the different dispensational. We've talked about dispensationalism quite a bit over, over the years. If you preceded uh, my time here at Parkway. You've heard about this uh, a lot as well. Jerry, who was the former pastor here, also went to DTS, and he's also not dispensational. So this has been a drumbeat uh, that we have, uh, have beat for many years. We can't adequately cover both positions, and so I'm just going to give you a few thoughts on why I don't hold to a dispensational view, though, again, you can be a flourishing member of, uh, of the, uh, certainly the Church Universal and even Parkway in particular, uh, even if you happen to be dispensational. Uh, so five reasons that I'm not convinced in dispensationalism. Number one, the Bible emphasizes the unity of Gentile and Jew. You see that throughout the New Testament. The Bible emphasizes the unity of Gentile and Jew within the church, whereas dispensationalism emphasizes the disunity. The whole purpose of the millennium, according to dispensational premillennial, premillennial theology, is so that the, uh, the nation of Israel... Uh, sees the fulfillment of the promises that God made to it in particular. And so you'll see this distinction between, and this disunity between Gentile and Jew, uh, regardless of whether you're classic, pro, uh, revised, or progressive dispensational. And, uh, and so uh, on, the, uh, on the other hand, I think the Bible is going to overwhelmingly emphasize the unity of the Gentile and Jew and say that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility so it seems to me like dispensationalism builds up what Ephesians 2 says God has torn down. Second, dispensationalism views the church as a parenthesis in God's plan with Israel. So it says that God's dealing with Israel, 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 the church, parentheses for a period of time, and then Israel, Israel, whereas I think it's the exact opposite. I think the Bible suggests that Israel is actually the parentheses in God's plan. That it's actually God's heart for the world. What does he do in Genesis 1? He creates the world. You don't see Israel until Genesis 12. The Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 12. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the creation of the world. Where does the Bible end? Revelation 21 and 22 with the new heavens and the new earth. That's populated by who? Not just Israel, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so the, uh, so the church isn't the parentheses in God's plan. Israel is the parentheses. 
It's the means by which God accomplishes the redemption of the world. In fact, in the very call, the first call of Abraham, he says, in you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's God's original heart was for all the nations of, uh, of the world. So that's the second reason. The third reason, the Bible doesn't seem to teach a secret rapture of the church. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, but this is a major plank of dispensational theology uh, all forms of dispensationalism hold to this pre-tribulational rapture. And if the pre-tribulational rapture is not accurate, then uh, the system begins to unwind. Again, we'll talk about the rapture and what that means here in a few weeks. Number four, dispensationalism often seems to read the Bible through a wooden, literalistic lens rather than allowing for the use of figurative language. Uh, in fact, it's dispensationalism that has historically, now this is not the case with all dispensationals today, but historically has been much more literalistic in regards to that has to be a 1,000-year period, no more, no less. And so it tends to view things uh, without understanding the role of figurative uh, language. And, uh, and then lastly, dispensationalism can tend to read the New Testament through the lens of the old rather than reading the old through the new. Does that make sense? It reads the new through the old rather than the old through the new. I think the way that we are to read the Bible is we are to understand the Old Testament with the reading of the New Testament. If the apostles have given us insight into what the original authors meant and what God meant in the Old Testament, then we shouldn't neglect that. And, uh, and so it seems to me like dispensationalism can tend uh, to do that. So that's why I'm not dispensationalism. Again, dispensationalism is not heresy. Many, 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 many people who love Jesus and who really study God's Word and love God's Word are dispensational. All right, we simply read God's Word in different ways. They read it in theirs, and I read it in His. It's a joke, kind of. Let's briefly talk about some of the arguments for historic pre-mill. All right, so historic Pre-mill. What are some of the arguments uh, for those? And then we'll, uh, as we consider a-mill and post-mill, we'll talk about how that relates to some of the uh, weaknesses and how these other views might handle uh, these things. So the first argument, that's a somewhat strong argument for this view, is that pre-mill seems to be the prevailing view of the early church fathers for the first three centuries, right? And so we're not bound by that. There's a lot of things that church history gets wrong. But the burden of proof should always be on us to dismiss the traditions that are handed down to us. In other words, I don't think that we should start at a blank slate as if we're reading the Bible for the first time apart from 2,000 years of church history. Can we go in an opposite direction as church history? Absolutely. That's what the Reformation is all about. But then the burden of proof is on us to say why history has gotten it wrong. I think you always start, you default with the traditions that have been passed down, the history that's been passed down. And then if you have convincing, exegetical, biblical, theological reasons to overcome those, then I think you can discard the traditions. But it is important to recognize this is, this seems to be the prevailing view of, uh, of the early church fathers, at least for the first three centuries uh, of the church. We already talked about that a little bit, uh, naming some of those church fathers, so I'll move on to the second point. Second uh, strength of this is that several Old Testament passages seem, at least on the surface, to fit neither in the present age that we're currently in, nor in the eternal state. 
If, if that's true, if there are Old Testament passages that don't relate to the present age nor to the eternal state, then uh, that seems to suggest that there is an intermediate period between the present age and the eternal state. And the only view that has an intermediate period is premillennialism. And, uh, and so just one example of that, Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who dies, who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a uh, hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. All right. So here it seems to suggest that there will be long life, but not eternal life. All right. Someone who dies at a hundred is going to be considered accursed or going to be considered as if they're an infant. All right. So there's this suggestion Obviously, that's not eternal life, like in the eternal state, and that's certainly not the case uh, with our uh, current uh, life. So, that is uh, an argument. Now, a response might be, well, maybe that language is not literal. It's not intended to be literal. It's intended instead to be figurative. Maybe the point isn't that people will just live a long life, but rather maybe this is a poetic way given in the context of the Old Testament to describe what the New Testament would clarify is eternal life. You see this oftentimes in, uh, in the way that the New Testament is going to read back upon the Old Testament. So, for example, we talked about this before, that the New Testament doesn't just fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. It actually expands those promises. God makes promises to Israel, and then whenever he actually fulfills those promises, those promises are even better than might be expected. We've talked about this a number of times. That's one of the fundamental things that you need to understand about the, the movement from the Old Testament into the New Testament is this idea of expansion. So in the Old Testament, God promises his people land, and that piece of land is, uh, you know, 100 miles by 70 miles or 50 miles or something like that, depending on the particular passage that you're looking at. And that's it. That's the promise of land. You get into the New Testament, what does God promise his people? The earth. There's an expansion there. Has, gone, has God gone back on his promise? No. He's given more. It's like if I promise I'll give you $10 and then actually give you $10,000. Are you mad at me because I didn't keep my promise? No, I've expanded. I've done even more than you expected. That could be what's happening here in Isaiah 65 that it's using this language of long life, but through the lens of the New Testament, we see it's not just long life, it's actually eternal life. There's an expansion of, uh, of the promise. And so I think that's likely what's happening here, especially considering if you read a few verses before that, notice what it says, Isaiah 65, 17, you should have it in your notes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In other words... Isaiah doesn't seem to be talking about an intermediate state. He seems to be talking about the eternal state. When there is a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, which sounds a lot like the language of Revelation 21, excuse me, Revelation 21 or 22, whenever it says uh, that there will be no sorrow or sadness or weeping or pain or anything else. So that's the second reason, though. There are some Old Testament passages that seem to fit neither in the present age nor the eternal state, uh, but the response to that would be that uh, it's possible that it's just simply uh, the case that there is an expansion in the New Testament that would help us to understand that. A third argument, there are pieces, other pieces of Jewish literature outside the Bible which uh, seem to predict an earthly reign in an interim messianic kingdom before 
the final eschatological end. And so there's a number of, uh, of references there from, from uh, First Enoch and uh, Fourth Ezra and uh, Second Baruch and so forth. So even though th- these aren't canonical, these aren't part of the Bible, there does seem to be some evidence that early Jews expected some sort of a two-stage process in regards to the uh, millennium with a messianic age followed by the end. And so that's an argument uh, in its favor. A fourth argument, certain passages seem to suggest believers ruling over unbelievers at some point. Look at Revelation 2, 26 through 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And so it seems to be that, uh, that there are these believers who are ruling and reigning over the nations, not just ruling and reigning over the nations, but ruling them with a rod of iron. And, uh, and so there, there could be a suggestion here that uh, there is this mixture, this intermediate state in which there's resurrected believers and also uh, unbelievers. That said, that would also mean that because there are these mixtures of resurrected and uh, immortal believers, that uh, those unmortal believers will eventually decide to oppose God and somehow attack the mortal believers, which, does, which seems silly. If I'm a mortal, I wouldn't want to attack an immortal. But uh, anyway, that's the, that's the view there. There are certain passages that might suggest uh, believers ruling over unbelievers at some point. Fifth, it makes sense of the original cultural mandate. Not sure we don't use this phrase a whole lot uh, here at Parkway, but cultural mandate uh, is the uh, in the garden when God tells Adam to fill the earth and to subdue it. You'll see that language there in uh, in, in Genesis, but it's argued that that hasn't actually happened because of sin. Immediately after the cultural mandate, what happens? There's the fall. And so instead of man filling the earth and subduing it, man fills the earth and man himself is subdued by sin. And, uh, and so premillennialism has Christ, the, the God-man, and his saints doing just that. According to premillennialism, that is the millennium. The millennium is the period in which uh, mankind will fulfill the cultural mandate to fill the earth and actually subdue it bring all things into subjection to God. And so you'll see a quote here. I'm not going to try to pronounce this guy's name, but since the Edenic covenants of blessing and the law were given in the context of this earth, they must be fulfilled on this earth before its entrance into the eternal and transformed state of the new heavens and earth. Now, my response to this would be, this whole thing would seem to be a very weak promise uh, to me. According to, uh, to historic pre-mill or dispensational pre-mill, after you die, you don't actually get eternal rest. Rather, you have to live for a thousand years in a world with sadness, with death, with decay, with lost people, lost people who are engaged in rebellion against God before you enter into the eternal state. To me, everything that pre-mill says that the millennium would fulfill is already fulfilled in the rule and reign of Christ from heaven or will be fulfilled in the eschatological kingdom, the eternal state. So there seems to me to be no need for something in between, but that is historically an argument in favor of it is that it would give time for there to be a fulfillment of this cultural mandate of the earth being subdued. And then lastly, 
the literal surface reading of Revelation 20 seems to prefer it. I think this is far and away the most compelling argument. Again, I'm 90% not this, but uh, the 10% that is this uh, comes from, uh, from this fact. The literal surface reading of Revelation 20 seems to prefer it. Let me give you two examples of that. The first one being the binding of Satan. If you recall from Revelation 20, it talks about how Satan will be bound for a thousand years, cast into uh, an abyss. Pre-Mills would say this can't be today, uh, given that Satan is not bound. Well, in which case, if you're a-mill or post-mill, you would say, well, what about Matthew 12, 28 through 29? where it says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, what's that next word? Binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying there, I have bound the strong man. I have bound the enemy. And uh, so if you're a post-mill or a-mill, you would say, yes, Satan is bound. Not bound in all ways, but bound in the context of Revelation 20. Bound in such a way that he can no longer deceive the nations. He can't keep the gospel from going forth. Whereas in the Old Testament, the good news of the kingdom of God was restricted to Israel. Now in the light of the binding of Satan and the expansion of the gospel, it's gone forth to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, if you are a pre-mill, you would say, yeah, maybe there's a sense in which uh, Satan is bound, but how does that make sense in light of passages like 1 John 5 and Ephesians 2, which you have in your notes, which uh, seem to indicate that Satan is prowling around and he's empowered rather than bound in an abyss. But the binding, so the binding of Satan is one of the strongest arguments for uh, premillennial theology. And this last one is probably the most compelling argument, that is, the saints coming to life in the first resurrection. Look at Revelation 20, 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. That's an important phrase. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second, uh, death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So that phrase, came to life, is used two other times in the book of Revelation. Both of those suggest not merely coming to spiritual life, but uh, uh, physically being resurrected. So one of them is used of Jesus, who doesn't just spiritually come back to life. He physically rises from uh, the dead. And so premillennialism says that at the beginning of the millennium, all believers will be resurrected. All believers will be resurrected. That's the first resurrection that he's talking about here. And then that unbelievers will be resurrected at the end of the millennium, uh, they will be resurrected to judgment. That's a second resurrection. Whereas if you are a-mill or post-mill, you would say that there's only one resurrection. And you would say that what's going on here is not actual resurrection. Instead, it's simply coming to spiritual uh, life, life in, uh, in heaven. So when you die, you are with Christ. That's the idea there. You're spiritually uh, alive. And so there's nowhere else in Scripture that mentions two different resurrections. Um, however, the pre-mill would say when it comes to death, 
the word here that's translated as resurrection, anastasis, always refers to physical resurrection. It never refers anywhere else in Scripture to just spiritually coming to life. And uh, in fact, uh, N.T. Wright, who wrote probably the best book on resurrection in, uh, in general, the best study on the topic of resurrection, he said, anastasis, this Greek word, anastasis refers to actual physical resurrection in every single use in Scripture, except in Revelation 20. That's what he actually says. So, but that is a compelling argument to say that this word means something different in this context than it means everywhere else in all of Scripture is, uh, is a large claim. And so I, I think given all of the other factors, I lean more towards another view, but those are the more compelling uh, arguments for premillennialism and a few of those responses. If you're utterly confused at this point, don't worry, all right? We have two more weeks in which we can further confuse you, all right? That's our goal, that you will walk away further confused. Let me summarize what we've talked about, and then we will uh, do some questions. All right, summary. Here's the things you need to know. The millennium refers to the thousand-year period explicitly mentioned only in Revelation 20. Again, this is the only uh, passage in all of Scripture that talks explicitly about a thousand-year period. Second thing you need to know, there are three main views on the topic, but they actually represent four different eschatological themes. So the three main views are pre-mill, mill and post-mill. But these are so different that it's probably unhelpful to classify them both as the same term. Instead, it'd be helpful to say there's just historic pre-mill, dispensational pre-mill, mill and post-mill. So three main views, but really four very different views on the millennium. Third thing, none of these views are heretical. Each are represented by godly, Bible-loving Christians. Fourth, though this isn't essential for our salvation, it is nonetheless important and can have implications for the way that we view our hope and responsibility in this present age. Hopefully, we'll make that clear as we go through the next couple of weeks. And uh, the final thing that I just wanted to mention, it's not a point on here, but I want to mention it again. Suffice to say, because none of these views are heretical, they're all represented by godly, Bible-loving Christians. If you hold to one of these views that happens to not be the view that I hold or Zach holds or another elder doesn't hold or whatever it might be, don't fear. There is a place for you here at, uh, at Parkway. We might step on your toes a little bit, but it's only because we love you and we want to challenge you and push you in that direction. Our goal is never just to simply mock you or to say you're stupid for holding this opinion or something like that. We just want to do our responsibility, which is to teach all that Christ has commanded. And uh, so, with that in mind, Zachary, you want to come up? We'll do some questions, and then we'll pray, and that'll be it. All right. Hey, everybody. Picnic day. Got my tennis shoes on for picnic day. Okay, so uh, a few questions. Some of these are a little longer and some are shorter. The shorter ones will move past uh, a bit quicker. The first one is this. When you say that premillennialism was the prevailing view of the early church, were there still respected church leaders who held the other two views even during uh, that same first three centuries? So uh, just so you know, the, it is it is the case that the most popular view, at least from our perspective, seems to be historic premillennialism from the early church. However, there were amillennialists. So Eusebius, uh, Clement, Origen, other major church fathers uh, were amillennial. You don't have 
post-millennialism represented much really until the 1700s. We'll talk about that when we get into post-millennialism. You do have, though, the type of amillennialism that some of the early church fathers held that looks suspiciously close to post-millennialism. And so the short answer is, when we say that the early church held to premillennialism, there's actually a lot of good research that has come out to say, yes, but it's not that simple. There are are other uh, church leaders that held to uh, less literal views of uh, the millennium in, uh, in the early church. So I didn't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, so historic pre-mill and a-mill, you can very clearly see in the early church. Um, you can see what seems to be one of those views that uh, could be read through a post-mill sort of thing, but really post-mill doesn't come about till uh, centuries later. And then dispensational pre-mill, we don't actually see until the uh, 1800s. And, uh, and so the, the first real sort of uh, awakening of, uh, of, uh, of dispensational theology isn't until the 19th century. So there's no evidence whatsoever in the early church or the Reformation or Middle Ages or anything else of dispensational theology, which is, again, one of the reasons why I'm not convinced. This next one I'm going to answer real briefly and then get to a personal one that somebody sent to you. Uh, not like a mean personal like, why do you, you know, why do you stand like that? It makes me nervous. Not something like that. Uh, the, just one, this one just says, a bit off topic, but what does it mean ruling with a rod of iron? So here's the idea. If you've ever talked to, if you've ever seen like uh, maybe there's a boxing match that's coming up and they'll say that the boxer's hands are like lead or like stone or something like that. It's a metaphor to say they hit really hard. Okay. In the ancient world as a king, you would have a scepter. A scepter is just this weird stick that you hold that means you're in control. I don't know why, but that's what they'd have. I've got this, this uh, stick and this means I'm in control. When a king has a rod of iron, the idea is that that's that thing's not made of gold, it's made of iron, and it is used to beat down your enemies. It is a way of saying that your rule is extremely strong when it comes to justice and justice against your enemies. So the idea of Christ having a rod of iron or us ruling with Christ, uh, the idea is that God is coming and he will dash the nations to pieces like pottery. Right now, he's Jesus, tender, meek, and mild, and he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? This uh, animal of peace. But when he comes back in Revelation, the blood is up to the horse's bridles and he brings the rain. Okay. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. So just uh, so think of the Old Testament passage where it talks about you know, swords and, uh, and other weapons are going to be turned into plowshares and pruning hooks and those kinds of things. That's kind of the, the idea there. If there is this rod of iron, it suggests that there is an enemy. You don't need a rod of iron if there are no enemies uh, to use the rod against. So that's kind of the idea there. Uh, this one's for you, Jeffrey. This is the, the personal one. You mentioned that you shifted from like 60% all-mill and 40% pre-mill to 90-10. What were some of the things uh, through your study that caused the shift? I'll answer this. I'm kidding. I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so like I said, I, I leaned toward that. It's not... Um, so when I... At, uh, at uh, DTS, when I was doing my uh, graduate degree... Um, my professor was great in the sense of he really, really focused on eschatology is not ultimately about millennial theories and tribulational theories and all that. Eschatology is about Jesus, which is really helpful for my faith in that season. Didn't make me a very good student in regards to understanding the distinctives of each view. And, uh, and so if you're going to have to choose one, choose the eschatology is about Jesus and don't worry about the other stuff. But if you can hold to that and also study the other stuff, I think you should. So I hadn't, uh, I hadn't studied it uh, nearly as deeply as I would have liked to. And so this whole semester has forced me uh, to do that. And, uh, and so uh, I think 
some of the, the uh, and I, I don't want to step on, most of what Zach's going to talk about next week are the reasons that I'm moving in, in that direction. And, uh, and so the more that I studied the, what uh, premillennial theology necessitates and the arguments for it, uh, I would, uh, sorry, I'm, this is a rambling sort of answer. I wasn't expecting a, uh, you know, defend my, defend my thing because I'm not defending amillennialism today. Okay, so if you look at all of the arguments, the six arguments I gave uh, for um, historic premill, what I basically did is I looked at each of those and I said, what would be my response to those? Do I think that those are actually compelling arguments? If I was on a, 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 a jury, is there reasonable doubt that those are not actually the most likely interpretation? What I said is, yeah, there's a whole lot of doubt. In fact, I think that it's, it's uh, more likely that those are not actually uh, the, uh, the case. And so I, I don't think Isaiah 65, in light of the fact that it says, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, I don't think that that's referring to an intermediate state. It seems to me like that is just language that's given in the lang- or, or a passage that's given in the language of the Old Testament that through the lens of the New Testament we would see there is this expansion. And so the more I began to look at the individual text and the individual topics, the more I began to see that uh, it seemed to me like an Amil interpretation of those uh, was actually more compelling than the pre-mill position. So that's that's the reason. Uh, Just so you know, the people stepping out are to help with the children. They're not offended offended dispensational people or something. Uh, Okay, uh, you'll hear a lot of jokes through this without us trying to give away positions. So there's a joke that... uh, Theologically, I'm amill, but exegetically, I'm premill. Uh, there's a joke that uh, uh, if you believe the Bible, you're amill. If you believe the whole Bible, you're premill. There's a lot of these other kind of things, and so you'll have to have to deal with. Okay, one last question. This one's a little more pastoral. Are there any views that are more or less faithful to hold, or can you be a faithful servant of the Lord and hold any of those views? So I'll, I'll answer those in reverse order and then kick it to you. Yes, you can love God and hold any of the views. Both, but the answer to both of these are yes. Uh, you can hold any of these views and love God, but there are always views that are more faithful to hold than others. Okay? So I think this is where a lot of evangelicals fight each other. There are things that are sin that we should completely stay away from, and then there are things that are not sin. But in that category of things that are not sin, there are positions that are more or less faithful. And we have a tendency just to say this is right or this is wrong instead of saying this isn't sin, but this is more or less faithful. So in God's mind, all three of these are not correct. They can't be. They're contradictory. God holds to truth. He doesn't hold contradictions. So one of these has to be right and the other one's wrong. Uh, And so uh, one of these is right and the other ones are wrong. And if you hold a wrong one, guess what? You're slightly less faithful than you could have been. But take heart. Christ holds the right view, which is, uh, and uh, he has held it correctly on your behalf. And so you are still seen as righteous because of him. So your faithfulness ultimately is given to you by Christ. Yes, anytime you hold a theological position that is wrong, that is less faithful than you could be. So let that be convicting. We have a tendency just to hold each other accountable with our actions, but not necessarily with our thoughts. And so, uh, but yes, you can still be a Jesus loving. All your heroes other than Jesus have huge flaws. I love Martin Luther, but I hate that he writes this anti-Semitic work. I love Augustine, but I hate that, I hate that he thinks that you can torture people into the faith. <laughs> I, love, I mean, all these guys have pretty glaring flaws, right? But uh, what you do is you take the good and you leave the bad. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just wrestling with the fact that most of your, if you have theological heroes, um, and let's say that Calvin and, uh, and Edwards are two of them, well, they disagree on this. And they're both faithful. 
And so the, the image that I thought of, uh, if it's helpful, great. If it's not, then you can dismiss it. But the, the image I thought of is imagine you've been told to move this pile of rocks over here. And so you go and you take and you grab a rock and you take it and you put it down and then you grab another and you take it and you put it down. You do that all day long and it takes you eight hours and you move all the rocks by the end of the day. Have you been faithful? Yes. But what if you recognize there is a wheelbarrow there you could have used the entire time? Could you have been more faithful? Yes. You could have done all of that work in one hour or 30 minutes or something like that. That's what I think these things are. I think there is a way to be faithful holding all of these positions But there is also a way to be more faithful. So what some of you need to hear is maybe you need to study a little bit more. And uh, on the other hand, what some of you need to hear is because you're going to obsess about this and you're going to think, I can't be faithful unless I hold the exact right view. You need to hear the exact opposite. And you need to hear there is a faithful way to to hold all of these views and uh, that at the end of the day, you're not saved by your theology. You're saved by Christ. And uh, so that's my concluding thought. Is that it? Okay, let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I just confess, uh, even as Peter says about uh, Paul's works, that some things in it are difficult to understand and the ignorant uh, twist it. And, uh, and so we don't want to be uh, those who twist your words. And, uh, and yet we do confess that uh, if it's difficult. If it's difficult for Peter, an apostle, then it's going to be difficult for us. And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would unify the church. This has a potential to be divisive. It has a potential for people to say, I follow Paul, I follow uh, Cephas, I follow Apollos. And so for people to kind of get together in their theological camp and just hang out with pre-mills or make fun of post-mills or whatever it might be. And so I just pray that you wouldn't do that, that you would use this somehow to encourage us, to edify us, and to unify us, that we might be challenged. Some of us need to be pushed to study these things more. Others of us need to be pushed to be a little bit more charitable to those who disagree with us. And so I trust that your spirit is able to do individually what is necessary for each of us for your glory and for our good. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you prepare our hearts as we go forth from here to, uh, to, to worship and to hear your word and to pray together that, uh, that we would be encouraged and edified and enjoy the opportunity as we leave here to, uh, to fellowship together and the picnic and all those things. And so we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us in Christ's name? Amen.